what does it mean to have an executive coach? Who should have one? Why is one valuable? Is it a sign of strength or a sign of weakness? Who should pay for it? In a nonprofit, wouldn't this be considered a luxury item? Then there's a whole different set of questions. Is a manager a boss, a coach, or both? Are they mutually exclusive? And what does it look like to coach your employee rather than supervise her? In my consulting practice, I do offer a range of services to nonprofits that include coaching. I find it super rewarding. My clients tell me our work together has led them to become more effective leaders, manage their time better. They've learned how to have difficult conversations and build stronger partnerships with their board. For folks who are able to bring in an executive coach, they can move from good to great. Today, we'll talk not just about the why of coaching, why it has value, and why it can fail, but equally as important, we're going to talk about how to build a culture of coaching in your organization. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Today, I am joined by the smart, savvy, and colorful Michael Bungay Stenier. Michael is the senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations do less good work and more great work. Box of Crayons is known for its coaching programs, which give busy managers practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. On the way to founding Box of Crayons in 2002, Michael lived in Australia, England, the United States, and Canada, where he currently lives. He's written two terrific books, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Coaching Habit, and Do More Great Work. But he's proudest of End Malaria, a collection of essays about great work by thought leaders that raised $400,000 for Malaria No More. Michael has written for or been featured in numerous publications, including Business Insider, Fast Company, Forbes, the Globe and Mail, and the Huffington Post. He was the first Canadian Coach of the Year, a Rhodes Scholar, and this is my favorite one, in 2016 was recognized as the number two coaching guru of the world. So, Michael, thank you for joining me, and I am dying to know. You are the number two coaching guru in the world. I didn't get my letter, so clearly I'm not number one, so you've got to tell me who came in first. Well, it's great. It's funny, isn't it? It feels a very weighty title, number two coaching guru in the world. And honestly, I, I just came across this. I mean, I just got found, it popped up, and apparently I'm number two. Well, I'm not sure how that's worked out. I'm somewhat surprised. But the number one is a guy called Marshall Goldsmith, who people may know of. Um, Marshall actually turned out to be a friend of mine, very influential coach, uh, has written um, What Got You Here, Won't Get You There, which is a great book on, on growth, has written a book on triggers, which is about building helpful habits. So he's, uh, he's an influential guy. Yeah, sounds great. Um, uh, so I'm interested uh, to have, your li have my listeners hear a little bit about your company. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, who you do it for, and um, frankly why it's called box of crayons sure so yeah called box of crayons and we've got a really narrow focus these days the way we say is we give busy managers and leaders the practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less so we've really decided that coaching is just one of those foundational skills doesn't matter if you're in a non-profit or a for-profit big company small company uh, uh, uh one that's thriving one that's struggling 
having your managers and leaders and your people being more coach-like can be a really powerful way to becoming a more resilient and more focused and a more successful organization. So that's what we do specifically. Our bigger vision is to try and help people and organizations do less good work and more great work. You know, good work is the kind of day-to-day get things done job description, but great work is the work that has more impact and more meaning than we're trying to get there, have people feel more engaged in the work they do and have more impact in the work that they do. Can you give me an example of uh, a client that you've worked with and just kind of actually curious, I guess, um, a client that you've worked with and um, some, honestly, some great work you have done with that client? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it, it's it's different in how it shows up for every client. So, for yeah, instance, uh, we work with a, a local nonprofit here, um, Free the Children or Me to We, um, fantastic, set, created by two young Canadians, they're now my age Canadians, um, but it's a thriving organization, but it's full of really young people and trying to build some structure into this organization because it is, like so many nonprofits, full of people who are fueled by an intensity of purpose Correct. but don't quite have the structure to actually allow the best of people to come forth. And so we did some work around coaching skills and management skills for the folks in Me To We. Um, you know, in a, in a different field, uh, we worked with Nokia, and people will remember Nokia if you're, you know, old at all, as they used to be the people who made mobile phones. Yeah. And then the <laughs> iPhone came along 10 years ago, and it all went to hell and high water for them. Um, but uh, we worked with them kind of in the, the year or two before they got bought by Microsoft and became part of Microsoft. Yeah. to try and hold people's focus on doing great work while they're in this place of turmoil all around them. Very, very interesting. Oh, so I, I, don't, I don't know that you answered the question about why your company is called Box of Crayons. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a good name, and people really like it and remember it. And because my name is a little complicated, it's double-barreled, and it doesn't have a hyphen, nobody knows how to pronounce Bungay Stanya. You did a great job, by the way, Joan. Thank Um, you. uh, When I first moved to Toronto, 2001, and I moved here not knowing anybody, never been here or visited here before, and so I was doing that, I've got to to get known, you know, I've got to start making connections, I've got to start networking, and because I like speaking, I'm a good speaker, a good facilitator, I was like, okay, I'm going to run workshops, run sessions, and for my local coaching chapter, I said, I'll come and run something on building a great brand because I knew a little bit about that from previous work that I'd done and lots of coaches and individual coaches branding I thought was pretty terrible. So I was like, I'll stir this up, you know, how to run a great brand. So I came up with something like Michael's essential and unbreakable laws of branding and then discovered my company name at the time failed all three of my own three names, yeah. my, my own three rules. So I was like, oh, that's a, that's a problem. That's a problem. Either, yeah. either my rules aren't unbreakable and essential or I need a different company name. And so I, was, I brainstormed a lot of different names, um, some okay, some terrible. But then when Box of Crayons showed up in my head, I just immediately knew it captured a lot of the things that I wanted to, to embody. Because, I mean, let me ask you, John, when you think about a box of crayons, what are some of the words that come to mind for you? Oh, colorful, yeah. uh, diversity, yeah. um, fun, playful. Exactly. 
right? Whimsy? Exactly. So How am I doing? You're doing great. And all of that, creativity, diversity, possibilities, playfulness, color, you know, all of that is stuff I want to bring into the work that we do, kind of capture some of the impact we want to have in the work that we do. And, you know, the point about a brand name is actually for people to not overthink it, but almost feel good about it. You know, there's lots of company names that kind of rationally explain what they do, and nobody gets too excited about that. But people kind of engage at a kind of more primitive neurological way by kind of the the emotional connection. And and most people have a pretty good connection with box of crayons. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, um, uh, I, you and I are both authors now, and I, um, uh, my my book is called Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and people will ask me what it's called, and I'll sort of kind of mumble it because it sounds rather dry. And um, I did persuade the publisher to put a garbage can on the cover, of, and the tagline reads, because nonprofits are messy, which is actually what I wanted to call right. the book. Yeah. Uh, that said, um, you, we live in a land of uh, keyword searches and Google searches, and yeah. um, uh and so I, I kind of went with the, how would more people find out about my book? So, um, and yours is called The Coaching Habit, and that would be something actually people would Google as well. Exactly. And a book title is different from a brand, right? Brand building. Indeed, indeed, reputation. Indeed. A book title, people look at it and go, is this for me or not? So exactly. you want something that's more practical and more obvious. So let's talk, let's talk about coaching, because that's what mm-hmm. we said we would talk about. Um, uh so there are folks who hire coaches from the outside, organizational yeah. leaders. Are you a fan of that or not? What do you see as the value and what do you think can go wrong? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's like when it's good, it's very, very good. And when it's bad, it's thoroughly mediocre. And there's a lot of thoroughly mediocre coaches out there. And there's a lot of, well, there's fewer, but there's still a number of really fantastic coaches out there. And so I think it, when it works, what happens is that the person that is being coached feels supported and challenged and provoked and encouraged, and it enables them to transcend who they currently are to step up to the next level. Um, you know, when you're a, a leader, it doesn't matter whether it's a big or a small organization, it can be kind of lonely, right? You're like, I've got to make the decision on and I can't really talk to anybody around here about it. So finding a coach who gives you space to think about stuff and space for you to recognize your impact on the people with whom you work can be extremely powerful. At the same time, Joan, you run into a challenge where sometimes coaching, like therapy, like all sorts of things, the, the... process becomes more important than the outcome and you're like you go through the motions and nothing really changes and the coach doesn't want to rock the boat because she's getting paid for it and the client goes i'm doing my coaching so i must be a good person and (laughs) kind of collusion around mediocrity so yeah when it's when it's when it's average it's pretty mediocre and when it's not working it's really not working but you know there are so many people i know who've really stepped up the impact they've had in this world because of having the support of a coach. Yes, I think that is absolutely true. I would also say, too, that one of the other keys to a successful coaching gig is a, a sort of a goal contract at the beginning. So not just, you know, 
So I only co- I coach in six month increments because I want there to be tangible evidence of success, right? And um, and so we agree upon goals, and they have to be specific enough so that everybody can look back at the end of six months and say, "Yeah, we did that." Like I want to learn how to become. This is probably one of the biggest ones. How to become less conflict averse? How to have difficult conversations? I want to create a stronger partnership with my board chair. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the more specific the goal is, I find the more successful the coaching experience can be. Yeah. And you look at somebody like Marshall Goldsmith, who we talked about earlier. You know, he he works with clients for a year. It's a one year contract. The average price of that contract is a million dollars. He works with CEOs of big companies typically or future CEOs. Um, he only gets paid on results. So he. They set a singular goal, one behavior change to six, one that really makes a difference. And the person is measured on how they're doing at the moment on by by their peers, so by the people around them, not by that person themselves. And then years later, they're measured again. And unless there's been measurable, tangible change, Marshall doesn't get paid. And what's great about that is, A, it's very outcome-focused, and B, it helps kind of, it helps Marshall pick the right people to coach. Because if he's like, this is the person who's not that interested, not that engaged, not that up for it, why would he take that on? Because he's going to work hard and have, not only have little impact, but also have no money coming in as well. That's so interesting. Um, I do think that uh, that really good coaches uh, that 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 the interview process is a is a decision that where there's a got to be a fit going in both directions, right? right. Like I I don't uh, you know I coach people who are good and who want to be great, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, and um, <clears throat> and I think that that's um, that's kind of what you're describing here, but I. You know, it's an interesting thing because most people say, well, all right, if you're looking for a coach, you need to really determine whether there's a good fit with the coach. I think the reverse is equally true, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Um, so I'm often uh, contacted by nonprofit CEOs who ask me if um, my clients' boards are aware that they're being coached with the sort of the implicit messages like, should I do this on the down low? Uh, will my board see this as a sign of strength or weakness? Do you ever do you ever see this in your work where uh, people come and, and are concerned that their boards or the you know the, that those around them may see the coach as a sign of weakness? Um, I think that that perception is fading fast. Um, yeah. I think ten years ago or fifteen years ago, for sure, coaching was a kind of remedial act. But it's such becomes such a common management strategy where you say we want our high potential people, we want our senior leaders to have the additional support of a coach because it's expensive and it's also a great investment as well for the most part. Um, and you know, I'd be encouraging people to say to demand from the board that I need an executive coach to make sure that I'm having the impact you want me to have as an executive director. Yeah, I see that. I see that more and more often in yeah. contracts that executive directors, yeah. you know, when they come on board, they say, you know, I want this salary and I also want professional development dollars so that I can have an executive coach. Exactly right. The um, I remember uh, taking on a client uh, two summers ago, I guess, and um, 
I knew I wanted to coach her when she said to me, so I have just gotten my dream job. Right. And if I were, um, oh, I don't know, if I were uh, Roger Federer and I was playing at Wimbledon, I, I wouldn't but, not have a coach. Right. Right. And so, um, so it's an, it, I do think the perception is changing quite a lot. Um, and in fact, actually, um, I often point people who are in this space to an article in the New Yorker from a year or so back about mm. a very well-known surgeon who felt like he wasn't quite on his game as much, and mm -hmm. he, but he was well-known and very highly regarded. And he hired a retired surgeon to watch his every move in the OR yep. and upped that surgeon's game back to being, you know, the five-star surgeon he really wanted to be. Right. And I find that to be a very compelling argument for folks who are thinking, gee, how will I be perceived? So the, the first thing I'd say is pretty much anything that Atal Gawande, who's the author of that, writes is brilliant. You know, he's a regular writer for The New Yorker. Yep. He's published a couple of books, probably three books, I think. And two of them, I think, are outstanding. One's called The Checklist Manifesto which is to understand that if, if you're trying to get stuff done successfully, the more you can convert to a process or a checklist, the more successful it's going to be. That's so Pick interesting. I don't know that. Arrogant people who go, I don't need a checklist because I'm a brilliant surgeon, for instance. But his latest book, which I think is mind-blowingly good, is called, uh, I think it's called either Mortality or On Mortality. And he actually focuses on how to live, a, not just live a good life, but how to die well. But he says, we don't do a good job at knowing how to die with dignity and to die well. So as an aside, those are, are great books by him. I, I mean, he, he, I mean, both your client talking about Federer and Edo Gawande on this article about coaching make great points, but here's what's missing. Their focus is entirely on raising their technical skill, which is like, I, you know, I want to become a better surgeon. I want to be more precise or I want to be more creative in terms of how I approach it or I want to be a better tennis player I want to hit a better forehand I want to get my head in the game and not kind of you know uh, give up or things like that those are pretty technically based skills yes um, in our organizational life you're dealing with actually something that's more complex you're dealing with an organization you're dealing with people you're dealing people. with strategy you're yep. dealing with ambiguity you're dealing with all of that you're dealing with leadership and going how am i leading people how am i showing vision how am i finding that right balance between certainty and vulnerability and you know you can make a great case for technical expertise as growth but honestly technical expertise is the easy part the the Working, first of all, within complexity, which is what any organization is, is, is harder. And secondly, there's a, there's a writer called Ron Heifetz who writes on leadership. And he makes a distinction between technical change and adaptive change. Technical change is learning something new. And yep. for most of us, it involves getting coached, reading a book, watching a YouTube video, practicing, and going from bad to better to good to, to excellent. Adaptive change is actually when you face some of the patterns of your behavior that are proving difficult to change. You know, you're like for the last five years in your performance review, your, your ED has said to you, or your board chair has said to you, 
you know, you really need to work on X. And yeah. you go, yes, you know, I do, and I'm, I'm up for it, and I want to do that, and I can see why I'll be a better leader or whatever as part of that. But for some reason, it remains elusive. You know, you go to a conference, you read another book, you watch mm -hmm. another video, mm -hmm. and you still can't figure out how to change, and that's when you're getting into adaptive change. It's like kind of if, if technical learning is adding on something to what you already do, Adaptive learning is like rewiring who you are so that you can perform at the next level. Yeah, really and coaching at its best is focused on adaptive change as well as technical change. And you know, I would encourage people to read that Atul Gawande article from The New Yorker. It's a great read. He's a beautiful writer. But I just want to say that I don't think that's the whole story. I think you're, I think you're making an excellent point, and we'll... Um... We will attach both the uh, link to that article as well as the link to some of the books that you've suggested uh, on my blog when we post the uh, podcast as well. So let's let's move to your book. Um, I feel like it's possible that in your book you might be making the argument that you that if you build a coaching culture in your organization, CEOs and executive directors may come to their roles with more of the skills and attributes needed to lead and manage. Am I, is, is that the leap that I make when I read your book? Well, you know, the book, the book called The Coaching Habit is really written for any busy manager and leader who's looking to say, how do I lift my game? How do I change the way that I lead people? Uh, because most of us are kind of caught into some vicious circles. Like we're feeling we're ahead of a, an over-dependent team that's kind of over-reliant on our guidance and our wisdom and our ideas and our advice and we're all feeling a bit overwhelmed we've got too much to try and get done and it keeps coming at us and some of us are feeling disconnected you know we've lost that kind of why am i doing this what's the point of it all and um, when you think about a coaching culture there's actually three different ways coaching can show up in your organization one is the executive coach that we've talked about i tend to think that they can be very useful tools for individuals, but that actually rarely affects the overall culture. The second option that tends to show up is you decide, and this happens with bigger organizations typically, you decide that you're going to appoint internal people to be kind of internal coaches. So you build like an internal coaching cadre, often you know, HR business partners or something like that, and they're available as the internal coaches. That can be okay. Um, but to really change things in your organization. For us, it's about getting all your managers and leaders to be more coach-like. We don't want them to be coaches. We just want them to be more coach-like. And what that means is how do you stay curious a little bit longer? How do you rush to action and advice just a little bit slower? And so in terms of shifting the way things are done, and this happens not just at the board level or the ED level, but throughout an organization, what you hope will happen is a, a little less hurry, 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 action, 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 a little more curiosity about what the real challenge might be, about what's really going on, about where we should really focus, um, a little less burnout because people are doing less jumping in and fixing things and solving things and, and doing it all for somebody else, but there's an empowerment that happens as it works down through an organization. That's the shift that I want to see. And so I actually, when I talk to people about this, I'm like, I don't necessarily need you to build a coaching culture. I want you to build a culture where people feel 
in the words of a great writer called Peter Bloch, they take responsibility for their own freedom. They feel, uh, or Dan Pink, you know, Dan Pink talks about motivation comes from mastery, autonomy, autonomy and purpose. But so how do you help people find mastery and autonomy and purpose? Well, having the people around you being more coach-like is one of the direct paths towards that. Okay, so let's get to it. In your book, you indicate that you can coach someone in 10 minutes or less, and you can build a coaching habit. Right. You've got the floor, my friend. What does that look like? <laughs> well, it's, it, the, the, almost the twist on what you just said is if you can't coach somebody in 10 minutes or less, you probably don't have time to coach. And here's the thing. People, there's nobody taking a strong stand against coaching. There's nobody going, I, I just disagree with coaching. I just don't think that's a good form of leadership at all. You know, you say to anybody who thinks coaching might be good, everyone's like, "Yeah, it's fine. I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not anti-coaching." Right. But say who's who's up for adding coaching to what they're already doing? <laughs> Everybody's heart drops a little bit. They're like, "I am so busy." Have you seen how hard I'm working right now? <laughs> and for us, again, this kind of comes back to adaptive versus technical change. We want people to change the way they're currently working rather than adding coaching as an additional obligation to what they're already doing. So again, what does that mean? It means, okay, in your already existing interactions with your team, with your boss, with your peers, with your customers or your clients, whatever language you might want to use around that, right. how do you stay curious a little bit longer? How do you rush to action and advice just a little bit slower? And in the book, we try to make it as simple as possible. So chapter one, here's what a habit is. If you don't know what a habit is or how to build a habit mindfully, you don't really understand how to create behavior change. And that's what we're trying to do here. So yeah, yeah. habits are the building blocks of behavior change. And then the remaining seven chapters are, here are the only seven questions you really need to really amplify your impact as a coach. Okay. So I love this quote in your book. Please give me some good advice in your next letter. I promise not to follow it. Thank you, St. Vincent Belay. But my uh, listeners, they listen for advice, and I hear from them that they follow it, and it helps them to be more effective leaders. So can you take us through take us through a few questions to the first three or four, if you would? All right. Appreciate so let me, let me, before we get there, let me just state this around the whole advice-giving thing. So I'm not saying never give anybody advice, because that would be ridiculous. I am saying that for you, me, everybody listening in, giving advice is an overdeveloped muscle. Okay. And two things happen because of that. The first is, maybe three things. The first is, you're, you're typically giving advice on the wrong problem because you think the first challenge that's talked about or mentioned is the real challenge. And it, honestly, it almost never is. Yes, I totally now, agree with that. Now, you're, now you're, you're trying to fix the wrong thing. Secondly, people don't act on your advice nearly as much as you think they do. They nod their head, they say that's great, but actually what turns into action? Not, not that much. And just think about how much advice you currently get, you person who's listening, and how much you actually follow of all that advice. Well, you know, that's, that's what happens with the advice you give as well. Not that much follows it. And there's a reason for that, which is, honestly, your advice isn't really as good as you think it is. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it is, but honestly, it's not nearly as good as you might think. So that's the rant about advice giving. 
not to say there's not a place for advice, but if you can just slow down, I didn't say don't give advice, I said slow down the rush to advice. And curiosity helps with that. So I want to give a couple of questions just as Joan asked to help you with that. And the first one is the focus question. It's the second question in the book. And it really speaks to this piece around we're, we're busy solving the wrong problem. And if you think the first challenge is the real challenge. Right. And so here's what that focus question is. What's the real challenge here for you? And how that's written, how that's spoken is very deliberate, very specific. I'm not asking what's the challenge here. Because you can guess I get you a certain type of response. It's a bit superficial, right. a bit kind of top of mind. It's not what's the real challenge here, although that's better. Because now you're saying there's more than one thing going on here. So what's the real challenge here? Where, it's, where it becomes most powerful is when you add the words or the phrase for you at the end of it. What's the real challenge here for you? And now the spotlight swings from the challenge to the person dealing with the challenge. And that is just significantly more powerful because now you're helping not only get the thing sorted out, but you're helping the person learn as to what's going on for them. So you're building capacity as well as dealing with the issue. And I'll give you one other question, Joan, and then I'll show you how you can just do these two questions in a powerful way. The, the second question, which is... Um, Oh, actually, this is the second question in the book. The, the focus question is the third question. Second question, best coaching question in the world, three simple words, A-W-E, so it's literally awesome, and what else? Because <laughs> the first challenge, it's never the only challenge. Uh, the first statement, the first response, it's never the only response, and it's rarely the best response. So watch how this works. Somebody comes up to you and goes, Michael, blah, 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 the blah, blah, blah. And rather than you twitching and moving into I'm going to solve this for them mode, which is where most of us go, you go, okay, I, I hear you. So let me ask you, what's the real challenge here for you? And whatever they say, nod your head, look interested, and when they finish talking, go, good. And what else? What else is a real challenge for you here? Nod your head, be interested, make small encouraging noises. Mm-hmm, uh-huh, <laughs> great, nice, yeah, lovely. Okay, let me push you. What else is a challenge here for you? And then you'll get a third answer. And then you can kind of lean in and go, okay, so knowing all of that, what's the real challenge here for you? Yeah. And I promise you the conversation has got deeper, the, the focus has shifted, and the person's got a new insight as to what's really going on, and you've got a new insight as to what's really going on. So two questions, a nice little script, but it's going to really quickly deepen the conversations you're involved in. So smart. So smart. I am, uh, I am joined by Michael Bungay-Stanier. He is really smart, savvy, and runs a company called Box of Crayons. Colorful, possibility, creative, all those words you think about. But it's a company that helps organizations do less good work and more great work. And he's known for his coaching programs, which give busy managers practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. Uh, speaking of 10 minutes or less, we don't have a whole bunch of time left. <laughs> we don't. But do you have a, like one or two more questions? Because I, I, your, your dissection of those two oh. questions was super powerful. Yeah, let me, let me finish with one final question. And it's the perfect question to wrap up on. Because this is the learning question. This is question number seven in the book. 
And one of the ways to frame your role as a board chair or as an executive director is as a teacher. You're helping people learn because when you learn, you engage them, you increase their confidence right. and their competence and their capacity, all great things to do. But to do, be a teacher, you have to understand how people learn. And, you know, as you already know, because we've talked about it, people don't learn when you tell them stuff. <laughs> it, it, just, it just goes in their head and pretty much exits their head almost immediately. And they don't even learn when they do stuff. You know, some of you may have heard of the 70-20-10 rule, which is like you learn 70% of your knowledge on the job. Well, that might be true, but only if there's a way to help them learn. You don't just learn by doing stuff. You learn by actually having a moment to reflect on what just happened, to uncover the ahas, to see the new insight. So the learning question is a really powerful way to do that. And it sounds something like this. What was most useful or most valuable here for you? So, for instance, John and I have been talking for 35 minutes or thereabouts. Um, right. When you reflect back on this conversation with Joan and me, what was most useful or most valuable about it? And notice what's happening. Now you're rerunning the, rerunning the tape in your head, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was valuable, what was interesting, what was useful for you. You're now activated your brain to figure out learning. Now, you've had a good time listening to us because Joan's super smart and asked a great question and I've got an odd accent and I've asked, you know, <laughs> given good answers. But unless you pause for that moment and go, what was most useful or most valuable, you're just going to forget this whole conversation. That interruption is what really helps the learning stick. So at the end of your one-to-one -one meetings, at the end of your team meetings, at the end of your board meetings, at the end of your conversations with some of your key customers and your clients, um, ask them, you know, this has been great, before you go, just so I know, out of this whole thing that we've just done, what was most useful or valuable for you here? They're going to get an aha. You're going to go, oh, that was most valuable. You're going to get an aha because you're going to hear the feedback. And, of course, what you're doing is you're framing everything as a useful, valuable experience, so your reputation is going to improve as well. I wish we had time to go through the other questions, but now people are just going to have to go to Amazon and, yeah. and buy your book, read it, and then leave a terrific review for it. If you're, uh, if you're desperate to, to know what the questions are, just Google the coaching habit, and there's a lot of articles that list all seven questions. So you can go there, but honestly, the book's, what, 10 bucks or something? It's a pretty good book. It, it's it's more than a pretty good book, Michael. It's a really good book. It's called Maybe. The Coaching Habit, Say Less ask more and change the way you lead forever. Um, and, I, and I think that what's at the heart of this book, which is what really drew me to it and to you, is the spirit of curiosity that is just wired into mm. how you go about your work and, how, and what you have infused into this book for people who read it. And... Um, I believe that um, after they, after folks have a read of this book and they ask themselves what was most useful for you, I, I think they're going to have a pretty long list, actually. Well, hopefully. And what's interesting, of course, is that when people do that, it'll be different. Different people will pull different things out. Um, so that's, that's part of the giving up control to allow the other person to gain mastery and autonomy and purpose. 
to kind of reconnect to Dan Pink stuff, which is rather than me telling you what was useful, figure it out for yourself. Extract what matters to you, and that's more powerful for you and actually, in, in the end, more powerful for me as well. It's um, the difference between a lecture and a seminar too, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's like uh, John Whitmore, who's another one of those influential coaching voices, says it's the difference between teaching and helping people to learn. I think that's the probably the perfect note for us to end on. Michael, um, I'm glad you're out in the world, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you're sharing some of your knowledge with us and my listeners and uh, with the wider universe, with the books that you write and the work that you do. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. It's lovely to be with you. Thanks, Joe. You're very welcome. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, on my blog at joangary.com with two R's, you will find links to all the things that we spoke about, Michael and I, today, uh, books that he has recommended, uh, links to articles. So don't hesitate to go on over there. And if you have not subscribed to the blog, uh, you might want to think about doing that. Um, there are about 30 or so podcast episodes on iTunes uh, here, so lots of other resources and uh, my new book just actually just came out, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, which you can also find on Amazon. So when you're buying Michael's book, The Coaching Habit, um, <clears throat> you could you could do you could you know double up and get a copy of both of our books nice. and uh, nice. leave us reviews. And we hope I know I can speak for Michael. We hope that uh, that there will be something useful and valuable for you in each of these readings. And until next time, thanks very, very much for everything you do to make the world a better place. Thanks. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.